2: Hi, I watched you trying to sneak some of that brandy in there when I wasn't looking. little we'll sneaker. No, not you. I know what you're drinking there, Mr. Moonshine. What's on your head, Lemmy? Talk is yeah.
1: Welcome to Talk Is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll, and let's get the weekend started with the patented. Here we go, Duff McKagan joke. How are we?
2: It's Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Hey, listen, I went and saw my doctor yesterday. He diagnosed me with hypochondria. I said, "Not that, too." Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>
1: I like that one. Stacy said she didn't get it. He's got got hypochondria, which means he thinks you have every disease. I saw my doctor last week. He diagnosed me with hypochondria, and the guy said, not that too. So uh, I like that one. And I love Duff for sending them in every single Friday, even when he's on tour, which he's about to be again as they're hitting the road next week, Guns N' Roses in South America, starting September 1st, and then they're going to Mexico, Asia and ending the year in Australia and New Zealand. And they are drawing huge crowds, as always. Uh, It's Guns N' Roses, so playing better than ever. And Fozzy, also playing better than ever, getting ready to hit the road again as well. The Save the World Tour continues September 8th in Columbus, Ohio, at the King of Clubs. And we're crisscrossing the States, headed to Canada for a couple gigs in Toronto and Montreal. Fozzerock.com has all the dates and ticket information, along with the details on our legendary, supremely popular VIP meet and greets, we're also headed back to Europe in November. We start in Manchester on November 4th. We hit Birmingham, Nottingham, Dublin, Belfast, Swansea, Bournemouth, Bristol, Glasgow, London, basically Wales, Scotland, Ireland, Northern Ireland, England. Uh, we are going everywhere. So come check us out there and come check us out in Australia and New Zealand. We are going to be there on November 28th in Auckland. And we got shows in Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide with Buckcherry. Come rock with us this fall, fozzyrock.com, for all the info and ticket details and VIP details, and come watch us rock, and come listen to us rock, and stay here to listen to Dave Mustaine, the leader of Megadeth, the legendary Dave Mustaine returning to talk as Jericho. They have a new album coming out. It's called The Sick, The Dying, and The Dead. It drops next Friday, September 2nd, but it's available for pre-order now at the official Megadeth store iTunes, Amazon Music, and wherever you buy music. I put a link on the show description for easy access. It is a great album. I've been spending a lot of time with it lately, really enjoying it. Dave and I talk about what it was like for him to make this record while undergoing treatment for throat cancer during a pandemic. Think about that radiation, chemotherapy, lockdown. He gets very candid about what the experience was like, how his battle with cancer changed his life, his music and his unique singing voice, and why he feels that he is a vocalist, not a singer. We talk about Kiko Larrero from Angra joining Megadeth on guitar. I'm a huge Angra fan, of course, obviously a huge Megadeth fan. He's been there for a few years. And how that's been for Dave and the guys to acclimate to him. Plus, Dave shares some stories about Metallica's early days, rooming with James Hetfield, uh, touring with Exciter, Canada's own Exciter, getting rides from Cliff Burton to and from Metallica rehearsals. What exactly... Uh, Dave contributed to a Metallica song that Cliff taught him from Leonard Skinner. you can going to hear about that. never heard that story before. Dave's also a black belt in karate and taekwondo and working toward his black belt in Gracie Barra Jiu-Jitsu. Dave's sensei travels with the band when they tour. We talked about that as well and a whole multitude of other subjects. Uh, great to talk to Dave Mustaine. Uh, always a good guy to talk to. And uh, my friend, and he's here, he's back on Megadeth. Right here on Talk is Jericho. The sick, the dying, and the Dave. Mustaine returns to TIJ here and now. All right. So uh, it's been a long time since I saw Dave Mustaine. And in the midst of doing press, you had to take a a 30-second break in between interviews here. Is this something that you enjoy doing? Is it a necessary evil? Are you excited about doing all the talking about the record?
2: Well, first off, hello to uh, all of your uh, listeners and viewers, and uh, it's so great to see your face. And I'm actually uh, really fond of our friendship. It's really cool to see you and, and catch up. with Me too, man. Absolutely. When I get a chance, you know, I, I don't know. You know, it's we we have so many, many, many interviews right now because of the. Uh, nature of this new record I've wanted to do this record for a while and and the music's been in me it just hasn't really surfaced a lot of it had to do with lineup a lot of it had to do with label a lot of it had to do with me so uh, I think I've done a lot of um, introspection after I got sick and and made me look at everything you know you got a lot of time sitting there uh, reflecting and thinking about things, thinking about people, thinking about, you know, what you would like to do with the time you have left. And th- that giant question, how much time do you have left? So right. I think it's made me a better person. I think it's made me a little bit more, I don't know. You, you, if you've seen any of the interviews as of late, there's a different kind of tone, I guess, that I'm feeling. I just a different vibration I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. You know, they talk about Tesla and about how uh, I think you guys play detuned. But back when we were playing an A440, the frequency 440 was supposed to have been a frequency that they tuned their instruments to. For your listeners that don't know what I'm talking about, the second string on the guitar, not the fattest one, but the second fattest one is an A. And it needs to vibrate at 440 vibrations per second i think it is a minute or something and the true frequency was supposed to have been 432 and that's what real classical uh, symphonies tune to is 432 and if you look on the internet right now there's a rage going around about listening to healing frequency they're really getting into infrared stuff uh, light uh healing sound healing and mm. uh, it's it's marvelous it's really really interesting now of course i wouldn't tune my guitar to 432 because it's uh, we're already tuned down to d because of the plate i have in my neck from the cancer uh from the uh, fusion excuse me right different surgery
1: <laughs> <laughs> a true heavy metal warrior for sure
2: a <laughs> yeah. bunch of used parts
1: so you're tuned to that for
2: vocal reasons then? Is that what you're saying because of the the plate that you have? No, we we uh to D, yes. yes, because I my range, I can hit the high notes but it sounds terribly strained and I, I'm not a, a singer, I'm more of a vocalist. You know, I I kind of tell stories a little bit more with melody and uh as opposed to someone like say a a Rob Halford or, a, or a, a, you know, a Sean Harris, you know, the guy from diamond Head, sure. or, or a Bruce Dickinson, you know, some of the people that sing. Mm. Um, I listen to people like sting singing. And I think if only, you know, <laughs> uh, if, if, if I could sing like that, what, what would it sound like? You know, would I have ever, would I, would I have sang in Metallica? Who knows? mm Hmm. Mm-hmm. I know James wanted to be the singer for a long time, but, you know, there were times when Lars and James had fights and not for nothing, you know, just, just saying. If I had been singing the whole time, I don't know where I would be or what I would be doing. Well, it's interesting when you talk
1: about your voice is something I was going to bring up. It's like you, it really is so unique. And if you showed up on The Voice or American Idol, you would not last, you know, five minutes. But like you said, you're like, you know, like Ozzy is like this, or a Bob Dylan is like this, where there's such a personality and uniqueness to the voice. Nobody sounds like Dave Mustaine. Mm-hmm. And you said that you're a vocalist, not a singer. Right. What is the difference for that for you?
2: Well, I think, I think uh, if you're vocalizing something, you're basically speaking something with a pitch to it. And maybe you're talking a little bit higher or something. For example, people that come from Canada have their sentences. And enough note. <laughs> what you're talking Americans about, eh? are On a down note. Right. And I think a lot of that has to do with the splitting of the country and the colonization of uh, Canada, that they embraced that part where the sentences end on the up note. A lot of European will ask questions and it goes up on the end. What are you doing today? <laughs> hey, would you like me to rip that band-aid off your head? <laughs> you're right, you're right. Imagine if, if, uh, if everybody did that when they talked they 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 vocalized when they talked everything was a a song Mm -hmm. of sorts there has been a couple songs chris i know we have known each other for so long that that you know the ones i'm talking about but there there are songs like a tool where I, i tried to sing a little bit more going home Coming Home, whatever the name of that song is, I can't even remember anymore. Coming Home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never struggled. You know, I said something to the uh, singer from Pantera one time that I, I liked the song Cemetery Gates. We were on tour with Pantera for some reason, you know, uh, it, it was the last show. We were in Holland, I think it was. And they said, Do you have a song you want us to play for you? And and I said, Yeah, Cemetery Gates. They hadn't played it all tour. Okay. And uh so I, I said, Cemetery yeah. Gates. And they did it. And I I think the guy's got a really good voice yeah. for singing. Cool. And and I think that sometimes when you go down a road, sometimes you can't go back. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can't. For me, I've always tried to make sure. Everyone knew if I took both of my feet off first base, I was either getting to second base or I was going to play one of the most deadly games of pickle you've ever seen in your life.
1: (laughs) So how was your voice affected? So, Talking with Bruce Dickinson five, six years ago when he had tongue cancer, Mm -hmm. he said when he finally came back to sing, he had a lot of issues with the saliva in his throat and that sort of a thing. And obviously his voice now is maybe better than ever, at least in the modern era. How did the throat cancer affect your voice and how were you able to adapt to it and, and come back to singing full, full throttle?
2: Same thing. I have uh, issues with my voice, with uh, saliva. See, I think what happens is when your head goes inside of that radiation chamber, there are certain things inside of your, your body that is not going to survive, And you're hoping that you push the envelope to the brink of death of the organ until it's had enough. And then you stop and you let it convalesce back to normal health. For me, fortunately, a lot of the stuff that was damaged is coming back. My memory was totally foobar. And I'm starting to Yeah, I I would be in the middle of a conversation, and and I have to ask the people that I love that are around me to help me because of, you know, what happened with all of the radiation. And the chemo was gnarly, too. I had a lot of chemo, too. Mm. I'll be talking about something, and sometimes, depending on what part of the day it is, I'll just be tired, or the medication will catch up with me, and and I'll... uh, Forget what I'm talking about. Uh, I'll get on a tangent because I have so many stories I want to tell. We'll be talking about something, and I'll think, "Oh yeah," and then it's like, "Oh shit!" I forgot what I was saying. You know? Right, 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 right. You have a, a metal heart too. Spiders, <laughs> spiders. No, my nipples get hard around you, Chris. You know that. <laughs>
1: of course, per- the, nothing's no, changed, was- Dave.
2: Nothing's changed.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Dave, like, like you mentioned, when you come obviously you hear the word cancer, you know, all of us were worried about you, but was it something that was, how bad did it get? I mean, was it something that was always manageable? It seemed like you kind of got through it, but I mean, was it, were you like completely screwed all across the board or was it something where the treatment
2: took care of it instantly? It didn't take care of it instantly. It took time. You know, there was, there was obviously stuff that body takes time it takes yeah i mean you're a extreme athlete you know when you get hurt you know your your hurts your your aches and pains are nothing compared to an average human because you're in a an elite athlete and your body has been conditioned to block out a lot of the typical pain most people would experience a stubbed toe and say ow you know you have to have your toe broken right right right, right. because your pituitary gland is uh, like a full-on charging rhino you know versus other people who don't put their bodies through that kind of a rigorous uh, workout and you know um, i'm doing bjj sure but i don't i don't exercise as hard as you do because i'm not competing right but you know the uh, Probably the worst part about the cancer treatment was the, the side effects The you know, cancer, we caught it early, you know, Mm -hmm. we we were able to deal with it without having to go under the knife, but it, it was still trying and it took its toll on my family because the, uh, all the different medications, you know, you have to take this one for nausea and that one for pain. And this one's for nausea from the pain. And this one's from pain from the nausea stuff. And then this one helps you sleep and that one helps you stay awake. And this one makes it so that you don't piss your pants. And this one makes it so that you can go pee. And, you know, and you're thinking like half of these, if I stop taking them, I don't need the other ones. Right. (laughs) Right. It's just crazy. And uh, eating was hard you know, I didn't have much of an appetite. And they said, if I didn't eat, I was going to get a feeding tube. And I said, there's no freaking way I'm getting a feeding tube. So, so I, I ate as much as I could. And when we were recording the record, we had the luxury of having someone run and get our, our food for us. So I was able to eat what I had a last minute craving for. Right. Unlike when you're at home and you know, you open up the fridge and you figure, well, what's there? How can I make myself satiated with what's here versus, you know, what, I think I'm going to have uh, a left-handed banana or something ridiculous (laughs) like that. You know, (laughs) looking back in hindsight, it could have been way worse. I think if I didn't have the support system I had that it would have been worse. It's great because there's a note on on We'll Be Back, a high
1: scream that is very Halford-esque. And I've never heard you sing like that before, Dave. It's right during the solo, right before the solo. And it's like, wow, that was a hell of a note. Is that something that you just said, fuck it, I'm going to go for it? I've never heard you sing like that
2: before. Uh, I must have got hurt while I was singing because I don't remember it. (laughs) Maybe it's a guitar solo sound. I don't know. To me, it sounded like a big high scream. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, honestly, Chris, the record's so fresh in my mind and I was undergoing so much challenge from the, the number one challenge, you know, making the record was kind of like a hobby while I was trying to save my, sure, my voice. because I kept thinking they're going to take a chunk of my tongue out, you know, I'd heard that about uh, Sir Edward and, right. you know, I mean, he didn't sing in Van Halen. So, I mean, granted, it must be terrible to be a person and have part of your tongue removed. But uh, that that wasn't the case. I didn't lose my hair, lost a little bit of weight, had two bad days of uh, getting sick. That was it. You know, I had days where I did throw up, but uh, there was only two days where I had bad days of throwing up. Mm-hmm. And everything else was, uh, you know, easy peasy. I think a lot of it had to do, too, Chris, from being out on the road and getting food poisoning as much as we do with some of the terrible stuff that we have to eat and and, you know, the famous line that John said in Dead or Alive, you know, some di- sometimes you tell the day by the bottle that you drink, you mm-hmm. know, and um, I don't know if you're a drinker, or if you ever were, or if you still do. And, and that's how I used to tell my day, you know, uh, where we're at at the time, how how many uh, bottles you would drink, you know, where, where you were at, how, how you were dealing with stuff because it, it was that kind of a living you were basically you know homeless and uh, the only difference between you and a real hobo was you weren't in a box car you were in, in a camper right you know, when we first went out touring and we were out with exciter i just talked to dan just recently i don't know if you're with him or not did you well, I didn't talk to I didn't talk to Dan Or I talked to his new member, but uh Dan and I were really close. We uh we were so poor in the beginning with Megadeth and we did this tour with them. We supported them. Uh Gar had gone out to go try and score some smack and he, he got delayed, whatever. I think what happened was he he connected and he got delayed. <laughs> right, delayed right. right Right. So um it's time for us to go on. No Gar. Dan's getting hot, right? No, Gar, it's going, clicking away, another 10 minutes, another half hour. He goes, okay, A, got to play now. I'm not happy about this. And I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> So they play. Gar shows up, and Dan was gracious enough, which was really cool because he was still the headliner to let us play after him. And the thing that was most important that I coveted with Dan was he was kind of, at the time, because I was basically homeless, he was like the liquor cabinet for me and for Ellison because he drank white Russians all the time. <laughs> it was so, so typical. We'd go over there and you would hear this on the camper door that they were traveling in and he'd go, hello, he'd be were quiet hey white russians come on man we're ready <laughs> not a sound right wait i know you're in there come on <laughs> so that's how the tour was after after we would play we would have white russian parties with them all the time that was a fun period in my life i loved going up to canada for that first time it was beautiful well canada especially eastern canada is such a
1: heavy metal area you know even to this day sure it is yeah You've been through so much. I love It's great hearing those early stories. and You're talking about now all the trials and tribulations you've been through. Has that changed your 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 attitude? Uh, I mean, when I see you, there was a great thing on social media uh, a few months ago where you go out into the crowd oh, and yeah. you gave a little kid a pick. And it's like Secret Dave Mustaine, that that kind of shuffle walk that you're doing with your hoodie on. It's like I don't envision Dave 10, 15 years doing that, which is amazing. You don't you envision me doing that. I don't envision you doing that maybe 10, 15 years ago. Maybe you did, but but it's to see oh. that now it's just like a whole it looked like a whole new mindset for you.
2: Yeah, I've always been cool to little kids, you know, and and uh, I've tried really hard to just do what's not normal. You know, the norm is to be, you know, hard ass and not to kids, you know, not not to women, you know, not to old people. You know, if it's a bro and you can get away with giving him a Charlie horse, you know, that's okay. But if it's if it's somebody who, and, and even in this situation, I didn't know if he knew who I was. Who the hell knows? Mm-hmm. But the fact that he knew who I was and, and that we had that little fun connection and watching his little brother go, who is this guy? You know, it, it's not hard to go out of your way to make people happy in life. And I don't know um, how that affected him, how it's going to translate further on in his life. You know, he may end up being uh, someone great in the music industry all because Dave Mustaine came out and gave him a guitar pick Mm. and be a guitar player. Well, who knows? He could be an attorney for uh, entertainment. You know, he could be a uh, super powerful uh, magnet in a record label or in management who knows maybe maybe he maybe he was uh, somebody in class that digs numbers and and that just made his brain just go to a new level you know einstein had said that uh, humans use approximately 3 to 8% of their brain and geniuses are the only ones who get up near the 8% level and i thought good god chris could you even imagine what people would be like if they could use more than that 3% or the geniuses that can get up to 8%, you know what I'm saying? Oh, totally. Think what things would be like. Because I i had seen this thing, you know, I, I'm a lot of people don't like me, and, and that's okay. I say stuff that makes a lot of people... Uncomfortable, and I don't do that to make anybody mad. I I like to bring things to the surface and have people find out for themselves the truth. Hmm. This is a lot of the stuff that you know we sang about in the beginning because it was it, you know it wasn't trendy. Trendy is a terrible word for anything associated with Megadeth. It was it was provocative, right? It was
1: poignant. You've always had that lyrics that make people people think a little bit. You know, yeah. And this record too. I mean, there's a lot of lyrics on about war i find in this you know and obviously you know the the, the first song sick the die and the dead is probably was it was about the bubonic plague is about the black plague i mean there's a lot of history in in the lyrics that you write right and that's to educate or that's what you enjoy
2: writing about metaphorically chris i think you know soldier on isn't about war yeah, Although it says soldier and it has a marching cadence at the end of it, it's a song about the, the inner conflict you have to make with a relationship, somebody that you know that uh, it's bad for you. You know, if you love something so much that you're willing to walk away from it, there, there's something very inherently evil going on there. And my drug use was so rampant when – a lot of the songs like like Tornado of Souls was about um, me having to walk away from this relationship. Soldier On talks about this person who has gotten so enamored with this double life that they're living that, Now, all of a sudden, the road is his mistress and the stage is his wife. He doesn't care about Mm. family. He doesn't care about children. He doesn't care about wives' commitments or anything, wherever he's at, whatever it is that he's doing. You know, he could be a musician. He could be, you know, a proctologist for right there. And you've got other songs like Life in Hell is another song that's very much like that hmm. i could have come across as uh you know a, an occult like song no it's more again about the relationship stuff dogs of chernobyl is it about uh, meltdown well it's about a relationship somebody leaves somebody on their ass and they don't know what happened poof they're gone i watched that b uh grade sci-fi flick on chernobyl it was a real schlocky movie and i i uh noticed one scene in there where they they these young kids had gone on this excursion out to uh, Pripyat to, to go see Chernobyl there were th- these dogs that were there and people had said you know what's up with the dogs and they said well when the evacuation order came people just left and they left their dogs behind and i thought well this is this is pretty awful mm-hmm. and it, it left an impression on me you know that that the person had to leave so fast that that they just left their dogs, their, their everything. I mean, if we had to leave, we would obviously have to leave horses. Uh, we have two big horses and one miniature horse, so we'd have to leave them. We have very, very small dogs, so we may take them. But if they said no pets, we'd have to leave them, you know? Yeah. And decision to do that probably is really difficult, but the feeling that I imagined... I'm not one of those guys that uh, wants to do you know some kind of shapeshifting or do some kind of crazy um, uh, thought transference, you know where I can think what it's like to be a dog. but just imagining what it would be like to have someone just gone, a whole city gone. Everyone gone. Mm-hmm. And you've gone from being an indoor person to living outdoors now. And now you've got to forage for your food every day. Plus, you've got to face all the other dogs that want to kick your ass, take your food. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's... So so there's a lot more to some of these songs than uh, What Meets the Eye. A lot of it's metaphorical. There's a couple songs. Killing Time is about some people in my life that I had endorsement with a long time ago that I, I had left You know, if if you look at it, Killing Time, for most people, they're going to think it's a song about uh, execution. Mm. It's not. It's a song about procrastination. So (laughs) time is fleeting. It's not being killed. I'm saying you're killing my time. You're you're wasting my time. Right. So a lot of the titles that Megadeth uses with our songs have death in the word in the title or, or dying or something similar to that.
0: So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to keepitfunohio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
1: I love uh, the sense of humor that you show sometimes in your songs. Obviously, this record is very fast at times. Great riffs, great guitar playing, as always. But I think in listening to it, this might be surprising. My favorite song that jumps out to me right now so far, uh, amongst many, is Mission to Mars. And the reason why is it makes me smile. It makes me laugh when it's like, you know, 300 million miles isn't too far away. And then you're like, yes, it is. Like there's these little, yeah. it reminds me of Can like
2: it take a light year or two. <laughs>
1: yeah, or three, you know, yeah. and like that's fun. It reminds me of like a thousand times goodbye where there's these little kind of a size and it's very much knowing you, you know, uh, very much a Dave Mustaine style of just little sarcastic little quips, snarky. Crips. snarky. Yeah. But it's great; like it really does connect with me, and I'm sure with with a lot of your fans when you do those types of
2: things. Thanks. You're the only person who's mentioned that yet, yeah, Chris. Really, it's the, it's it yeah. jumped
1: right out to me the first time I heard. it. I was like, "What was that? Rewind it. Rewind it." You know,
2: yeah. Or, or, or scroll back, shall we say, in this day yeah. and age. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did you know that we released cassettes on this thing? Really. And I had gotten the shipment from them that had these really awesome, awesome collector's item records. I'll send you one, the lenticular ones. You know the lenticular one, like the tool cover, that uh, animal one, where you flipped it back and forth and the guy rockered on his behind? Yeah, this is a lenticular one, but it's not like that. It's like one of the three-dimensional ones. Mm. And and we did that for the the disc. We've got a dual gatefold record with 180-gram German vinyl discs. And then we have the regular record that is just a single disc, but the double uh, record has, it has three songs per side. So the grooves are spaced out a lot. It's, the fidelity on is amazing. We also have a CD with the lenticular cover on it, and that has bonus tracks on it. It has uh, Sammy Hagar's track from his solo career, This Planet's on Fire, which he graciously said he's going to jump up on stage with us when we play San Francisco this uh tour coming up here. I hope we get a chance to do it. I hope he's there, you know. Uh, I had mentioned something to Marty Friedman when we are playing in Japan coming up in February at Budokan, would he play with us? And he said, yeah, and then he writes back the days that he's out of the country and he's not there. So, yeah. you know, all these years we've been waiting for the perfect opportunity to do a, oh, a song together. You know, Budokan was a place that we were supposed to play together. It was something that Marty really loved and sadly, at the time we were unable to do that we had a, a stint where the band was trying to get sobered up and you know i had gone into treatment and while i was there the guy from Millie Vanilli was there and the manager came and got him and took him out and consequently he died that tour mm. and i had been told while i was in in the treatment center that you know when you get out of treatment that you need to go and just chill mm. you need you need to get a support system basically So uh, I was planning on going home and we had an agent at the time named Andy Summers and he booked us to go right after I got out of treatment to Japan. And I went, you're out of your mind. You need to cancel that. And I didn't think it was a big deal, but it was heartbreaking for Marty. This is the first time since that time back in 1992. Jeez. It's been 30 years since that episode happened where we get a chance to play budokan and i talked to marty he was down for it and then it's scheduling that would have been huge that would have been huge for people yeah it would have been really cool i asked him what song he wanted to play too and he said tornado and and kiko's the only one that's played tornado right besides marty you know it's great to see how much emphasis the the guitar world has put on that particular solo Mm. you know when you're writing a song you never really know what's going to happen you know when we did my book. I'm a best-selling author. Yeah. And I had a book come out several years ago. It was my autobiography. And one of the things that the attorneys kept saying was, you got to make sure that you don't invade anybody's privacy. And I didn't really know how me telling my story would invade other people's privacy. But there were a lot of instances, and they're too long to go into, but there were a lot of instances whereby me telling my story would implicate somebody else or, or reveal something about somebody else that... They don't necessarily want somebody to know, right? Yeah, I was with my one friend, and he was a chronic toenail biter. You can get sued for that. <gasps> yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, Marty, and then
1: you mentioned Kiko. I- I've been an anger fan since f- nineteen ninety four. So when you brought Kiko Larrero into Megadeth, it was it was a big deal. I was a big fan, and now it's two albums later, and he's actually ha- helped write quite a few songs. On this record, so yeah, the chemistry is there, the trust is there for you to to take his riffs or whatever it was. I mean, obviously that's worked out hugely for Megadeth and for you to have him in the band,
2: right? You know, with with everybody, there's a, a learning curve. Sure, you know, I had to learn a lot about him, and, and he had to learn a lot about me. And one of the the humorous sides about us trying to get Kiko into the Megadeth mindset, I asked them to read the lyric. Prior to playing the part, I said it's important that you know what the song is about so that you can move out the proper amount of emotion, emoting, and not knowing what the lyric is about, you have a frenetic solo over something that should be a little bit more somber. You've missed the plot. Interesting. So we were goofing around, and I was working. It's a it's a little video clip. I don't know if it's ever got. To many people to see it but we posted it a while ago and and I am sitting there and I'm looking like this right now up at the monitor on my Pro Tools rig right at that face that you get right <laughs> and Kiko's sitting next to me in a chair and he's whittling away on his guitar I'm trying to do one of his solos and he goes hey dude I think I have a guitar an idea for this solo and I said okay and I look at him and he starts playing reggae and he was <laughs> with me course, but I I was in no (laughs) mood at that moment for him to do that, right? So, you know, Kiko has a very playful nature. He's very much like a a cat, you know, with the way that he uh, kind of plays around with certain things. You know, I think the difference between dogs and cats are are pretty obvious. Kiko's very cerebral with his thoughts. They're very calculated, and he's very much in, in his I don't want to say his own world because that sounds disrespectful. But Kiko is very happy with his life and where he's going. You know, we all face challenges at every every stage in our life, and this is no different than than anybody else going out on a two month tour when you have a set of five year old twins is challenging. But uh, I think that the success of the record right now is is uh, setting the stage. And, you know, as, as things change uh, for us with our careers, as we start to learn how to conduct ourselves as businessmen, start to put a little bit of money in, in the bank, start to get a car, get a house, you know, start to save some money and, and plan for the future. You know, th- those are things that are all happening right now with Kiko and, and Dirk. As you know, him being an Anger fan, he's been at this a long time. This is really great now because I told him when I first met him, I said, your life's going to change, man. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care how big you think Anger is, you know, because I like Anger too. But I said, you're going to go from being an Anger to being a star in Megadeth. And I said, if you play your cards right, you'll end up being a superstar. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've always tried to paint the picture of the dynamic, I think, with the band. You know, you sometimes the success of a band is based on the makeup of the, the pyramid of the band. You know, you've got your your marquee player, much like in hockey. You've got your goal scorer, your soak, as it will. And then you've got your B-grade players, usually your supporting cast, then your C-grade players, your defensemen, and then D-grade, which are your grinders, you know, your utility players. So, right. Right. Um, you know this more than I would being Canadian and probably skated a lot as a youth. So, you know, the establishing that hierarchy around your your franchise player is uh, what the success of the team is built on. So when you have a band that's got, say, four guys, we'll keep it simple. And all four guys, they just play an instrument. They're not musicians. They just play instruments. They'll never make it. They'll never make it. So you have a band of four guys, and they're all musicians. Will they make it? They'll probably be a really good cover band. If you have a band and you have one star in it, will you make it? Probably. But the other guys in that band won't be there when the smoke clears. Mm -hmm. If you have several stars in the band, it's a good chance they're going to stick together the whole time. And there's a good chance that you're going to go on to superstardom. That makes sense. If you're a superstar, you don't really need a band. You want a band sometimes. You find people you really like, but they don't always keep pace. And it's very much like being on a wagon train. You can't have an ox next to a horse. (laughs) They're, They're unevenly paired up. Right. Right. I don't know if you've had to make any of those terrible things we call lineup changes. The worst part is the worst part is when you have to make a lineup change with a friend. Like if you are playing in a band and you've put it together with high school mates and you have to say goodbye to somebody, that's always painful because uh, usually the saying I've always said, if if you get in the band with a friend, be prepared to lose both. I think you know when you have to say goodbye to those guys. A lot of times, the friendship's over. So that's a caveat for young musicians. To uh, you know, uh, if you hire somebody based on their ability to play, then you don't ever have to explain to anybody why you've got a bad bass player. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> dating my sister. Well, great, but he sucks. <laughs> Can't even play dates and confused.
1: I being such a, obviously such a guitar driven band and you being one of the best guitar players, not just in metal, but in, in rock and roll history, in my opinion, is it difficult when you have to get a new guitar player, you know, from Chris Boland to Jeff Young to Broderick. Now, now with Kiko to learn the new style, do they have to connect with you? Do you have to connect with them? Does it take a while to kind of get that
2: blending? Sometimes they're, they're all different animals. Yeah. I think a lot of it had to do where they were centered. You know, if they were, If it was uh, Megadeth-centric, then everything would be great. If they were self-centered, then it wouldn't work because Megadeth is a band. Although people identify me as being Megadeth, I go out on stage with a supporting cast that's my bandmates, and they sing and they solo's. solos. So I look at Megadeth as being a band, and I'm the leader of it, but I know I couldn't do it on my own. Having said that, are there... Times in history where there were better guitar players than others, yes, numerous times. An example, we'll we'll use the drumming area because that's a fairer way to uh, explain this. Having a jazz drummer with Gar and then going to a punk rock drummer with Chuck was a dramatic change. Mm. And the songs, had the songs on So Far So Good So What been recorded by Gar, it would be a totally different record completely different record and the person that we used to record that album was a guy named paul Annie. i think he did this a pretty terrible disservice uh recording that record because he had chuck record the songs on drums with no cymbals hmm. so he played the whole drum set with no cymbals and then when it was time to do the cymbals he came back after the fact and played the cymbals really very very strange uh he said that he did that for separation and you know, I couldn't see the merit in doing that, and it wasn't long until I let him go because his way of recording just didn't jibe with yours, right? Well, I never heard that before. I had heard that Peter Gabriel had done the uh, "War Without Tears" record without symbols. The whole record didn't have symbols on it, from what I heard, if I remember right. Do you know that one song? Yeah. With looks in killed, they probably will with days without blood. <laughs> yeah, frontiers. "War Without Frontier." Before yeah. That, yeah, so uh, no symbols on that record. That's why front of house guys use that to tune the uh, PAs so many times when you go in concert. If you're there early and you're hearing the front of house engineers tune the PA for the upcoming bands, they'll use that track because there's no high-end white noise coming off of the track from the symbols i know you know this but sure. i don't know that for any of your listeners would know that and and there's always interesting stuff to to learn you know when you and i talk i i learned stuff about you you learn stuff about me and there's always stuff about the industry that we talk about that most people wouldn't hear
1: you know? i wanted to ask you another question along those lines on the we'll be back sure. video it's a great clip on the beach there's a, there's a big violent fight it's a very uh, almost saving private ryan fight to the death but it's almost like the origin of the, the see No Evil, hear no evil, speak no evil Vic Rattlehead.
2: Um, Vic was about see No Evil, speak no evil, and, and hear no evil. My mom used to sell imported junk. She would get stuff uh, <laughs> from these magazines. And I don't know what she was thinking because she lived in an apartment about the size of a one car garage and it had two little bedrooms that were about the size of two. Volkswagen garages. That was the size of the whole apartment. Mm-hmm. Hetfield lived there with me when when we lived together at the end of Metallica. Once we uh, let Ron McGovernie go, James had to move out. So he moved down there with me in that place. And, mm-hmm. you know, my mom would have this, this stuff. So she by no means was a distributor of anything. She had like a couple shoeboxes of junk she was trying to sell people and had that one little little thing, three monkeys, you know. Yeah. <laughs> seen over here in early you know, yeah. And so that was kind of like what I took with me through life, you know. Do do the right thing to others. Treat them the way that you want to be treated. See no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. And you know what? You'll get through life. And by the time I had gotten to be an adult, I had pretty much simplified it. And I had said something to someone when they had asked me about, you know, what I – had hoped for my son. I said, you know, I have only two things. I hope that he he uh, will at some point in his life read the Bible, and I hope that he's a black belt in a martial art style because he'll have all the wisdom he needs, and uh, he'll know how to take care of himself, and he'll be able to pursue any line of work that he wants to do if his heart's right. I, I'm very proud of both of my kids. I think that they've done really well. A lot of people thought that my kids would end up being my son would be keith richards and my my daughter would be you know like nancy sponging or whatever um virgin whatever her name was but uh yeah i've been really busted in that area you know having a strong life uh,
0: really had a big part to do with that the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
1: Last few days we to wind down, I noticed, too, once again, you guys do a lot of jujitsu jitsu on the road. Do you have a a sensei, a teacher that travels with you so you can work out during the day?
2: Yeah, he's a fourth degree, black belt in Gracie Bacha Jiu-Jitsu. I've been training with him for a couple of years. I'm getting ready to have another test coming up, which it's great for me because... You know, I'm learning two different angles because of all my other martial art background. I'm learning the Olympic style, and I'm also learning, you know, self-defense style, which is a little different. You know, the moves are uh, in self-defense. They're obviously, you know, you're defending yourself, life or death kind of thing. And the Olympic one is where you're just going for points and uh, stuff like that. So learning the history, I I, uh, had to learn when I got my black belt in YukitoCon with Benny the Jet. I had to learn about him, about Native Americans, about his career. That's how I fell in love with the guy. He was just such an amazing hero. And when I got my second black belt in uh, Sangam, I uh, had to write a, uh, an essay on on Korea, which was uh, interesting. So you know, I just didn't go into some place and, and just go to a multi-level marketing martial art place and go buy a black belt. It's It's been a lifelong process since I was 12. Professor Reggie trains me. He trains Kiko. He trains my son. Several of our crew train with him. It's just a fun environment because the guys in Five Finger Death Punch have their trainer out with them too, when we were out with Trivium, the singer for Trivium had his trainer out. So there's a lot of people that do BJJ, and and there's not really that big of a difference between Gracie and and uh, some of the other jujitsu schools. I like Gracie because there are 900 schools. I like it because it's consistent training from one school to another. I, I like the fact that when you go in there, you don't hear the uh, our style's better than your style stuff. They used to do that in the beginning, but. I don't have to deal with that. That's one of the things that usually makes me know I'm in the wrong place when you go in there and the guy's saying his style is better than anybody else's because you know what? A gun is going to eliminate your style <laughs> in one click. I went to a school up in, in Canada where uh, George St. Pierre trained, and I was so thrilled, Chris. It was so awesome. You know, uh, I don't know if you know him personally, but uh, I don't. I'm don't. i a big fan of his. Uh, he's classy like you are. And, I've noticed that the UFC is starting to do a little bit more of the drama stuff, Mm -hmm. a little bit more uh, following in line with what you guys are doing Mm -hmm. Um, with the backstory. I've never heard anything that he did. I do know that the TV show that they have now with the UFC does a lot of that backstory stuff and trying to build, you know. Sure. The characters. Rivalries and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but he was a guy I just I dug. Like when I first saw Connor, I dug him. And then towards the end, I, I uh, so much stuff happened where I just kind of lose track. You know, the phenomenon wears off and, and you go on to a new fighter. Sure. I gotta tell you, I've, I've always been a fan of George ever since the first time I saw him fight. There's a lot of other guys that I really dig too that are real classy fighters. And way back in the day when the Iceman used to fight. Yes god uh, yeah chuck he was the man he came to one of our concerts before and and i remember meeting him and i i was just just standing there like i'm scared <laughs> the first time in my life i'm really scared standing in front of somebody it was so awesome so
1: you mentioned five finger and 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 your tour with five finger tour with lamb of god i think it's such a great idea and, and so, so smart for you to tour with a newer band, not that Lama God or five finger are newer, but you could go out with, you know, other thrash bands from the eighties, but it's, it, I think it puts Megadeth on a completely different level when you're doing these co-headlining tours with bands, mm. you know, radio bands, shall we say in a lot of ways. Mm. I mean, it's smart. Is that the idea behind it to kind of have different
2: eras of fans come see you? Well, we've been trying to do things, uh, a bunch of different ways. You know, we, uh, Seven years ago, we made a management change to Five B, and and we started with uh, the Dave Mustaine Charm Offensive, and. <laughs> Rebuilding the Perfect Beast. So we, we knew basically where we were comfortably was playing in theaters mm-hmm. and uh, venues like that. And the goal was to eradicate the image or the impression that Megadeth was a theater band. Mm-hmm. And so we started working slowly but surely on on ourselves, on our image, on our performances, on our song selections... On the merchandise that we have, the things that we talk about, the press, the interaction with the fans during the show, after the show, before the show, all that stuff, and really started taking this uh, strategic approach to things, much like the predecessors we have that are still successful. A lot of times when you look at them, you think, well, I wouldn't do that. For example, Kiss. Kiss is uh, a huge marketing business, and and it's a brand, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people say, you know, I wouldn't do that. But you know what? I, I, I think if you're talking about branding stuff, there may be some products that they've put out that that I wouldn't put out, but I think the way that they've made themselves successful and popular for 50 years, whatever it is, they've had a plan. They've had a strategy. And uh, that's something that we're, we're really embracing right now is thinking about longevity, thinking about how we can help other bands because they're good promotion devices somebody goes out there and says we run a great tour with Megadeth and that's great press
1: yeah it works last two questions for you Dave you have mentioned uh, James and Lars a few times I want to ask you what your favorite Cliff Burton story is if there is one because as the years go by people still talk about Cliff but very few knew him and you were in a band hung out is there a story about Cliff that stands up for you that that makes
2: you smile there's not not a lot of stuff that comes to mind that, you know, we when we did spend time together, the extent of the time that we spent was he would come and pick me up at this horrible place I was living at. <laughs> Mark Whitaker, the guy that had done sound for the band at the time, James and Lars were living at his house in the Bay Area, and I lived way up in Walnut Creek. Cliff would pick me up, we'd ride to rehearsal, we'd jam, we'd ride back, he'd drop me off, and that was it. Didn't see him very much. We would drink at rehearsal. He smoked pot, but he had commercial. And it was like homegrown stuff. It was really terrible, but he smoked pot. So the one thing that I remember most was the day that the uh, mechanics became the four horsemen. And uh, we were at the rehearsal building, which was a garage at Mark Whitaker's house that we turned into a, uh, a jam room, hung carpet inside, and we played there. And I went in there and uh, we'd been listening to Leonard Skinner because Leonard Skinner was one of Cliff's favorite bands. We're playing the mechanics, and Lars goes, Man, we need to add this fucking slow part, man. <laughs> I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, Well, why would you put a slow part in mechanics? You know, because it's, I wrote it after watching that movie with Charles Bronson. The killer that was called the mechanic, right? Okay. And I worked at a gas station, so I kind of melded the two ideas together. And so I thought, all right, and I played. i turn it up. Come on, y'all. The muscle shows, they love the governor. Sweet home, Alabama. Right. So. Lars goes, that's brilliant. And I felt like saying, well, oh, the Van Sant seemed to think so. <laughs> or maybe Roslingtons or Collins, one of those guys, uh, whoever wrote the song. So he he left it in the song. And I thought, oh, my God, Lars. That, that was It was funny to me.
1: <laughs> the rest is history. Last question for you, Dave. Is there a song or a solo that stands out in the sick, the dying, and the dead? I know it's hard because they're all your children. But is there one that stands out for you today? That you like the best?
2: God dang it. You would have to say that. (laughs) Um, I'm on the spot. There's so many that I love. Uh, Night Stalker has got some rad shredding in it. Yeah. Probably Night Stalker because that's the fastest song we've done in in a very long time, if ever.
1: Super fast.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a great record, man. I really enjoy it. It's almost, uh, I I really enjoy Dystopia, but I think this one is better. Thank you. On uh, on early listens. So it's great talking to you, Dave. Me too. Uh, Hopefully we get a chance to see each other again uh, sooner than later. Six years is too long.
2: Yeah, it has been too long.
1: Cheers, man. I'll see you. I'll see you on the road somewhere. Thanks, dude. You got it, buddy. Be good. See you later, dude.